Mission didn't speak to the fan experience at all. So for me, coming from minor league baseball where none of the games matter, the stats don't count effectively. Like to me, I came in and it was just all about the fan experience. And I sort of found myself feeling a bit like an alien in among the women's professional soccer folks where it was all about getting either all or at least a quorum of what were perceived to be the best players in the world because that was the measuring stick of legitimacy. And in a way, I think the league founders boxed themselves into a corner with that mission. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Thank you, professional announcer guy. My name is Tim Hanlon. Thank you for joining me. Good Seats Still Available is the podcast, and we are on a journey together. Thank you for joining me on the beginning stages of it uh, as we look to explore what used to be in professional sports. My guest today uh, is a double threat. His name is Andy Crossley, and uh, he is interesting for two separate yet related reasons. Uh, One, he is the curator of a fascinating website that uh, I encourage all of my uh, listeners to to check out and uh, and and just roll around in. It's called funwhileitlasted.net. It is a treasure trove of all things defunct and forgotten in pro sports. Uh, you will uh, lose a lot of time, uh, but gain a lot of knowledge from that website. And uh, he has uh, meticulously curated uh, stories and anecdotes and interviews and and memorabilia uh, around teams and leagues that uh, aren't around anymore. Obviously, a fascinating first guest uh, to pursue for that reason alone. However, Andy is also interesting from a uh, another uh, point of view, and that is as a general manager for a team in the second, I guess, incarnation of women's professional sports soccer here in the United States called WPS, Women's Professional Soccer, uh, in the latter part of the first decade of the 2000s. Andy was the general manager of the Boston Breakers franchise that frankly existed in, uh, in its original form in the league that preceded the WPS, the Women's United Soccer Association or WUSA, and succeeds or exists today uh, in the successor to WPS itself called the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League. Uh, there's a whole tortured history of those three leagues, the WPS sitting in the middle of them, and how women's professional soccer continues to grow uh, despite various shots in the foot along the way. Uh, and that's what we'll get to with Andy as well, which I think you'll find uh, deeply fascinating and instructive. Uh, before we get to Andy, though, I just want to remind you our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Please check it out. You can send us some email. You can su- subscribe to our email list, of course. And on social media, you can find us on Twitter at goodseatsstill. Um, find us on Instagram at goodseatsstillavailable. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page for that too, etc. But let's waste no more time. Let's get to our conversation with Andy Crossley uh, from a few weeks back. Why don't we start with perhaps how you and I kind of got connected? Um, so, uh, funwhileitlasted.net um, is, uh, for those of our listeners who are not aware of it, is uh, an amazing treasure trove of forgotten sports history. Um, I discovered it, I don't know, maybe 2011, 2012. Um, Andy, you are the curator, the originator, the 
biographer, I guess, of of forgotten sports teams and leagues through fun while it lasted. Um, how about some background as to sort of how that even came about? I think I wrote the first post in uh, the winter of 2011. And at the time, I was the general manager of the Boston Breakers, which is a women's professional soccer team, still exists today in the National Women's Soccer League. Um, but at the time, the Breakers were part of a different league called Women's Professional Soccer. Um, we were, you know, a couple months out from what proved to be the league's final season, and that was painfully obvious that that was going to be the case. Um, and so I think I was very much aware of the mortality of the team <laughs> uh, and my own job. And uh, although that although that team ended up enduring. Um, and, you know, it, I just always been sort of fascinated by the, the business lives of these, of these teams outside of the major leagues that have come and gone and, you know, realized that I was, you know, part of that process and had been many times in my career. Um, and that there are often a lot of sort of outlandish stories that happen in the sort of wild, wild west where a lot of these uh, either minor leagues or kind of um, entrepreneurial startup leagues exist. And so, um, you know, as I was in my sort of final year, knowing it was going to be my final year in this pro soccer league, I thought it'd be a good uh, practice to sort of archive some of the stories that I witnessed as I went along, but also to write about some of the other teams that fascinated me, either from before, you know, before my own time or, or that I had watched growing up that had come and gone. Well, we're going to get into the Boston Breakers specific experiences uh, in a little while because there's a, there's a treasure trove of stories uh, relating to them and, and women's professional soccer. Um, but uh, the, um, I, I'm just struck by um, the, just the depth and the, um, uh, just the, the richness of some of these stories. Um, it, it looks like it's also, you've also somehow been uh, a collector or perhaps by default have, have seen collections of uh, the things that were indeed left behind, like programs and, and guides and, um, and, and various uh, other memorabilia, um, almost maybe perhaps by default. But um, in those pictures, in those, uh, those uh, items, there's a whole bunch of unearthed history in there too, right? Yeah, I mean, if you visit the site, there's about a thousand teams that are chronicled there from every imaginable league from, you know, pre-World War II minor league baseball to lingerie football league teams. And there's probably about 10,000 images of, you know, sort of memorabilia that these teams have left behind, especially, you know, programs and media guides and press releases and, and things that sort of tell the visual history of these teams and also the eras in which they operated. And the, the site's also kind of evolved over time because, like I said, when I started it, I was working in the industry, and this was six years ago, and so I really had access to a lot more stories. Um, now I've been out of the industry for about five years, um, still working in sports but in a nonprofit youth development world. And so the site has sort of out of necessity evolved a little bit away from sort of my personal diary and experience and into a little bit more of sort of like an encyclopedia um, 
an image archive type of site, which is, you know, good, good and bad. I kind of miss, I miss the stories. And actually, you know, I, I had so many over the 15 years or so that I worked in pro sports front offices, there's so many times when I would sit down with friends who work for different teams and they'd be thinking about getting out and going into a sort of straighter line of work. And inevitably they'd be like, but I'd really miss the stories. <laughs> and it was like, that was like a big motivation for a lot of people to stay in is like, just that in any given day, the strangest characters and the, and the weirdest things could happen to you. And it was a definite part of the allure. Um, well, so that's, that's a perfect segue into, yeah. uh, can you give some insight to uh, some of the more standout stories or fascinating things or maybe even oddities that, you know, kind of stand out in your mind? I mean, I, I can give you my favorites, but um, uh, they're just some amazing stories that I, I, you know, frankly, I think are very rich and probably uh, capable of being told as book stories or even movies and all those kinds of things. What things stand out for you based on what you've seen in your sort of labor of love over the last number of years with this? Yeah. I mean, everybody who's worked in minor league sports says they have, they're going to write a book someday. <laughs> most, most of them don't, but um, there's a lot on Amazon, you know, that five people have bought, you know, five friends and family members because everybody's got some good stories, but um, the two sports that I spent most of my time in were minor league baseball and professional soccer. They're a little bit different, but, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about minor league baseball from a sort of storytelling perspective is that um, it's this sort of crossroads where everybody's either on their way up or on their way down. And, you know, which is what Bull Durham's about, right? Um, you know, you've got Nuke Lelouch on his way up, and then you've got, you know, Kevin Costner on his way up, um, Crash Davis. So, um, you know, I remember the first game that I worked in minor league baseball in 2001, so opening day of the 2001 season, I was the PR director for a team in New Hampshire called the Nashua Pride. So my first day was also Jose Canseco's first minor league baseball game in 15 years. <laughs> and he had, he had been, he had been in the 2000 world series for the New York Yankees. Um, he had at the time something like 470 home runs, 460. He was, he was within a good season of 500 home runs. And at that at that point in time, no one with 500 uh, major league home runs had ever been denied the Hall of Fame. So th it was a big deal about whether he was going to get that 500 or not. And, um, you know, the Yankees had cut him loose. He had gone to spring training with the Anaheim Angels, and they had cut him. And so he had signed uh, to play independent baseball in the Atlantic League with a team called the Newark Bears for $6,000 a month for four months. And even that paltry salary had required a vote of the league's board of directors to approve because it was double the league maximum. Um, so the Bears were opening on the road in Nashua, New Hampshire at my ballpark. Um, and I, was, I had been working this job for three months. And by virtue of working there three months, I had become the third most senior person on the staff. I'm sorry. No pressure there. Yeah, the fourth most senior person on the staff. The girl who was number three had started five days before me. So... Um, you know, normally the Pride had uh, two press who covered the team. There was a beat writer from the local newspaper, and there was a stringer from the, the big newspaper in New Hampshire, 30 miles north up in Manchester, 
who was a, you know, he wasn't even on the staff. He was a part-time, he was a substitute school teacher, a stand-up comedian, and he was the, the stringer, part-time writer who covered Nashville Pride. Perfect, perfect qualifications, no? Yeah, yeah. so in a normal game, you know, those were the two guys in the press box, along with the local radio crew. But because Canseco was playing, we had 80 press credentials for that day. CNN was there. All four, Sports Illustrated was there. All three of the major network news trucks out of Boston had trucks there to do live remotes. Canseco had played for the Red Sox, so that was an additional angle. Um... You know, I had a whole section of stands that was just cordoned off for press because they couldn't fit in the press box at this little, you know, 5,000-seater ballpark. And Canseco himself had really played up the the notoriety event because he was claiming he was being, being blackballed um, from Major League Baseball for reasons I don't recall anymore. Um, no, his road to redemption, essentially. Or at least yeah, this is, this is before he wrote Juiced, by the way. It's a couple of years right, before. Right, sure. So, you know, he came out, he gave a press conference. Um, he actually, he didn't take the team bus from New Hampshire. He, he drove up in uh, his SUV with his twin brother, Ozzy, who also played in the league and was the reigning league most valuable player. So Jose and Ozzy drove up separately, and I happened to be out front of the stadium when they pulled in a couple hours earlier, and they, they got out of the car with these two <laughs> these two girls who look like they're about 15 years old. And there was a guy setting up the hot dog concession right next to me when they came out of the stadium. And I looked over at him because he's the only guy around. And he just looked it back at me and raised an eyebrow and he said, those must be their nieces. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he came in and, um, you know, he was there for a three-game homestand. It was the, you know, we sold out three games in a row. And But that night, the night after opening day, um, the whole staff and all the interns, we convened at the general manager's apartment um, to do all of the laundry for both teams because um, the person who usually does that in minor baseball is called the clubby, yep. clubhouse manager. It's one of the worst jobs in America, and they work entirely on tips. And last year's clubby had not only quit, which is not unusual, you know, from year to year to have your minor league clubby quit, but he had not only quit, but he had loaded up the team's laundry machines into the back of his truck and he had like disappeared into the middle of America somewhere. So we not only had no clubby, we had no laundry machines. So we had to do all the team's laundry at the general manager's apartment. And it was about three in the morning and we had finally washed these 50 uniforms and dried them and stacked them and folded them. And one of the interns was going through the piles, and he said, uh, Canseco's jersey is missing. <laughs> and uh, Of all people. Of all, yeah, you know, of all people. And they only travel with one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and he's a pretty big guy. Um, so we, How did we, he handle it? We, well, we scoured the place, and I think at like 4 in the morning, we found it stuck to the inside of a dryer on like the 8th floor of this guy's apartment complex because we had needed like every laundry machine in all of the buildings of his complex to do all this laundry. Um, and it, it was just it was just crazy. And he uh, and Canseco ended up going to the local uh, Mexican restaurant that was our, our Wednesday night, you know, two-for-one hot dog sponsor. I'm not sure why a Mexican restaurant was our two-for-one hot dog sponsor, but he went there and he ended up stiffing them on a on a bill, 
which they then put in a frame and left up for the rest of the summer. Um, so, so at, at what point in, in, in the play out of that story and, and, and at what point do you question your sanity uh, uh, as a career choice um, uh, for the oddities both that you've experienced and maybe uh, arguably then were yet to come in your career? No, I mean, at that point, you know, you're 23 or 24 years old and it's awesome, you know? And like I said, like I perceive myself as on the way up. And he he was clearly sort of on the way down. You know, he was within, he actually did end up getting back to the majors that year. And he hit the final 16 home runs of his career and ended up, you know, 20 short or something like that. Um, But, you know, he was clearly kind of at the end, um, as were a lot of players uh, in the Atlantic League. Um, But there were... There were also young players there. You know, it wasn't really a prospect league, but there were players on the way up, and certainly the people in the front office perceived themselves as being on the way to some destination. Um, and a lot of times, the difference in age of those people wasn't that different. So you'd have a you know recent grad who was twenty three or twenty four, who really thought they were on their way to being a you know general manager in the major leagues or a sales director for the Boston Red Sox or whatever it would be. And then you'd have a baseball player who was 25, but had been drafted right out of high school and had played six or seven years already and was, you know, had washed out of the affiliated minor leagues and was clearly on the way out. And, you know, these are people that you spent the whole summer with and, you know, in some cases socialized with. And it was just a really interesting, interesting dynamic. So how did that then spill over? So there's almost, it almost feels like not only in your career, we'll, we'll get to the the WPS part of it uh, in a minute, because I really want to go deep on that, because the idea around this podcast is is kind of, you know, telling those stories around leagues and teams that, that um, for whatever reason, uh, are no longer with us. But but uh, what compelled you to uh, not only share that story on your website and, and, and again here, but, um, but all those other stories as well? Um, it almost feels like there's a psychology to it or some kind of other essence uh, to, I don't know, the frivolity or the oddity or the just unique nature of these teams and leagues and people that, um, for whatever reason, somehow either didn't make it or was part of their their, their careers, like you say, either going up or going down. Yeah, there's a... I think whether people are going up or going down, there is sort of like a nobility... <laughs> Like a weird kind of nobility to what they're doing. Um, you know, there were, I would say, especially in baseball, there were players there that needed money and didn't really know what else to do. Um, they didn't necessarily have a lot of other skills to fall back on. And there was an allure to that, too, because, you know, you could play on the Nashua Pride, which was not especially a successful team. Um, you know, you probably played typically to about 1,800 people a night. You know, but we had players on that team who were in the off season, who had, in some cases played in the major leagues. In the off season, they were hospital orderlies, or they were... There's a couple guys who loaded um, packages onto planes for Federal Express at the airport in like Cincinnati and Kentucky. Uh, a couple guys did that. And that's what they did all winter. And then in the summer, uh, they were not only paid to play baseball, but they had 
groupies and they had kids with their baseball cards asking for their autograph. Um, you know, you can see why that would be difficult to give up. Um, that lifestyle, even just beyond, you know, the dream of, you know, maybe I've got a couple more years left in me and a scout's going to see me. Um, and not even necessarily a major league scout, but a lot of times the payday for these guys that were playing in independent baseball was to get picked up by Korea or Mexico and go over there and make six figures um, for a year. Uh, so you, you could see why that would be alluring, but there was also sort of, for, even for a guy like Canseco, who, you know, probably nobility is not a word that's often thrown around with him, but, you know, there were probably other things that he could have gone and done and I don't know how much he saved his money. I know later he, he ended up he ended up in some financial distress. But, you know, you do have to give him some credit that he loved to keep playing and he, he chose to do that. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, on the, on the front office side, I mean, a lot of really bright, hard-charging, energetic, a lot of cases very well-educated people who are choosing to do this kind of work for eighteen or $22,000 a year and working seven to eight hours a week and really wanting the type of work that's going to be a lifestyle that doesn't, you know, shut off um, late at night. or And it's interesting to be around people like that. Speaking of, I mean, so interesting uh, is a kind of an understatement. I, you uh, On the site, you have some uh, really interesting interviews, and I suspect that at uh, some point, uh, you probably could even go further with them. But uh, there's one in particular that um, maybe acts as a, a, a decent segue that I, I just thought that I'm, I'm continue to be taken by. And, and I'm sure you've got some some thoughts about uh, it's a, with a gentleman by the name of Rudy Schiffer. And in your description, um, you describe him. I don't know if he self describes himself or, or you're describing him as the undertaker. And uh, uh, he essentially kind of led that life for, I don't know, almost a dozen different teams that no longer exist in the NASL, the American Soccer League, the USFL, um, even the Canadian Football League when it uh, had its dalliances with places like Shreveport and Memphis. Um, anything particular that sort of strikes you from that interview? Yeah, that Rudy was great to talk to. I, he was probably in his mid or late 70s when I interviewed him and I probably talked to him for two or three hours on the phone one day and yeah he called the undertaker was his name for himself and it was because he had buried so many teams um and um yeah he had sort of been everywhere and done anything everything especially around Memphis Tennessee um but he had also been involved with like um the NASL when Pele had come to America and you know, he was with Memphis when USFL, when they had signed Reggie White out of college, plucked him away from the NFL. Um, and he was a PR guy. So he was always trying to put the most fantastical headline grabbing spins on anything he could. And he's also just a great storyteller. So, uh, yeah, that was a fun one. Well, it, it feels to me like that that's, there, there's plenty of those kinds of stories out there. And I, I'm wondering, as we we're segue into your, your uh, specific experiences in, in WPS, uh, in a second, but um, are there any patterns or trends uh, that you sort of see as you've, I don't know, by by default, uh, uh, chronicled 
these stories, both things that you personally experienced and, and, and heard through other people? Um, you know, are there certain psyches that are drawn to uh, the allure of, of sports and, and uh, the American dream, so to speak? Uh, obviously, it's a big business now. Maybe years ago, it was sort of more of a, a creative outlet and exercise than it was sort of a moneymaker. But any sort of things or, or patterns that you see with the various people and coaches and players and broadcasters, et cetera, that you come across in your in your trove here that um, that seem to resonate? Or is it just sort of one big motley crew of of craziness that just sort of makes up the bigger tableau? No, I mean, there's definitely some patterns and like you can even see it in sort of different positions within the industry. But like, you know, it's a first of all, it's a very white industry. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of white guys with short hair, sort of cut from the same cloth, and um, uh, you know, so there's a lot of like in broadcasting, for example, like in baseball broadcasting, there's a lot of like sort of geeky sabermetric guys, um, you know, the kind of guys who sort of like go to the bleachers all through high school and college with their tape recorder and they like record themselves mock broadcasting the game, you know, it's just a recognizable type. Um, I, I think another one that's re really honestly sort of important to the industry continuing to run is that a lot of the industry is sort of based on the economic theory of the greater fool, which is that, um, you know, if you look at investors who've made money in minor league sports, um, they generally made money from the sale of teams, from basically flipping teams uh, there's very few who've made a lot of money operating teams. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of business models at this point that should have been essentially thoroughly debunked and, and thrown away, yet they continue to thrive because there's always the greater there's always the next guy. <laughs> there's always there's always the next guy who has always secretly fantasized or dreamed of owning a sports team. And a lot of times these guys are businessmen who've been successful in other fields. And part of their, you know, ego in a lot of cases is that they believe that whatever they've learned in whatever other field is transferable in some way to sports. And that, you know, they think the guy they just bought it from is the sucker <laughs> who couldn't figure it out. The guy who's selling it thinks the guy he's selling it to is the sucker who can't see that this isn't going anywhere. So, you know, there's some sports like minor league baseball that actually have a really good economic model where there's a lot of subsidy and partnership, both from the communities that teams are in, in terms of helping to finance ballparks or giving favorable leases, or from major league teams that are helping to underwrite the expenses of these teams as a developmental system. Um, so I'm not saying that somebody who buys a, you know, affiliated minor league baseball team is a sucker. But somebody who buys an arena arena footballing team is an absolute sucker. Um, now, why, and, why do you say that? Is is it because it's such a relatively new and untested marketplace? Or no, the polar opposite. It's you know, arena football is going into something like its thirty first year uh, this, wobbly, though, this summer. Fair. Uh, it's going into its thirty first year. Uh, it's none of the franchises have ever made money to the extent that if anyone's operated in the black, you could probably count them on one or two hands. Um, and you know, the, the challenge is, you know, 
arena football teams have no partnership. You know, the NFL doesn't, for example, underwrite the player salaries the way that Major League Baseball teams do for minor league teams. And most importantly, they're tenants in other people's buildings. And one of the really important things in in, in this level of sport is that it's very, very difficult to survive as a tenant in someone else's building um, because that means you don't control revenue streams like parking and concessions. That money all goes to somebody else. Um, but you're paying a lot of times often exorbitant rents to play in these places. Um, and, you know, there's no significant broadcasting revenue for, for leagues like this. You know, most of the, when you see something like an indoor lacrosse game on TV or an arena football game on TV, generally the league is actually paying the production costs to be on, on TV as a marketing expense. They're not getting a multi million or billion dollar contract from Fox Sports One or, you know, TNN or anybody like that. So, um, this, this economic model has been debunked for years and years and years, but leagues like the National Lacrosse League and the Arena Football League, they don't go anywhere um, because there's they can always find the next guy. So well, in, that, in many respects, perhaps Major League Soccer, right, uh, and, and there are clearly um, uh, critics of Major League Soccer's somewhat centralized, actually completely centralized business model, but in many respects you have to give them credit for going soccer specific as a part of the business model for, for a bunch of those very reasons, right? And we've seen plenty of attempts of professional soccer over the last 40 years in this country that um, have failed because of some of those issues you just said. Yeah, I mean, they're a huge success story. And there's not really... I think almost the only thing you could liken them to might be the old American Football League. Um, so... You know, Major League Soccer now does have TV contracts that pay them substantial amounts of money. Um, so they do have a broadcasting revenue stream that other leagues can only dream of. Um, they do have municipalities who are helping them build state-of-the-art stadiums, um, which was not the case when they started, and they were playing in football stadiums and losing a lot of money. But Major League Soccer also... Um, is sort of eternally um, indebted to just a handful of guys like Phil Anschutz, Lamar Hunt, and Robert Kraft, who I think at one point in the early late 90s, early 2000s, they were down to three owners who owned like every team in the league. And they lost, you know, in their first five or six years, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, something like a quarter of a billion dollars um, on, on, on Major League Soccer. And it was only a handful of guys who were underwriting that um so very few leagues could sort of follow that the path that they've taken and they also had a sport that everywhere else in the world was the number one sport like there was a there was a, a path that you could look at where that sport had been trod in other places that you could see a light at the end of the tunnel if you could just get it right despite how many other people had failed at it in america you know for a lot of these other sports like lacrosse or arena football or whatever, you know, or any women's professional sport, you don't have, you know, you can't look across the pond at like the English Premier League and say, maybe we could be like that. You know, you've got to visualize it yourself and do it yourself. And that's an additional um, hurdle. But the reason I compared to the American Football League, which interestingly enough is another a Lamar Hunt, you know, uh, story is that, you know, Lamar Hunt really got that started and there's a famous story that's i think 
I think everybody agrees it's an apocryphal story. But when the when the AFL but, started, but that's, never gonna, that's never going to stop us from from having those stories right. told on this podcast. So go right ahead. That's right. And I'm sure our listeners, eventually, as we get listeners, will correct us or or correct our guests if they're uh, if they're somewhat off base. But go right ahead. Yeah, and I, I'd imagine that anybody who's listening to your podcast probably knows who Lamar Hunt is. But if they don't. I mean, he's one of the great sportsmen in American or world history. He started the American Football League. Was the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, he was one of the founders of the North American Soccer League and operated Indeed. the Dallas Tornado franchise there for 15 years, which is longer than anybody else hung, in, hung on in soccer at that stage. And then he was one of the founders of Major League Soccer, and he backstopped several Major League Soccer franchises over the years, including the Dallas, Kansas City, and Columbus franchises. And his, his children... Today, he's deceased now, recently, but his children continue to operate um, the Kansas City Chiefs and be involved in Major League Soccer, I believe. But, you know, when he started the AFL in 1960, I think, he was a young man and he had an oil fortune he'd inherited from his, his father. And the apocryphal story is that, um, you know, a press conference of sort of skeptical sports writers had said, you know, your son's going to lose like a million dollars a year doing this. This is a really stupid idea. And his father said, well, if that's the case, I guess he's only going to be able to hang on for 150 years. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, so, you know, that's one of the guys that, that let Major League Soccer get through that enormous, like, bloodletting that they went through between 1996 and 2002 before... You know, Don Garber arrived and the stadium projects got a little bit more momentum. And Lamar Hunt was the first one to get a soccer-specific stadium in Major League Soccer. He got he got one in Columbus. So he really started that movement and that boom, which, you know, has been indispensable to their, that league's success. Absolutely. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, Michael McCambridge, uh, as you probably know, wrote a book called uh, Lamar Hunt, The Life in Sports, which I recently finished. I believe actually Michael lives in my town, my hometown here in Lake, in Lake Forest, Illinois, um, on the short list uh, because uh, the, the stories about uh, people like a Lamar Hunt, um, without them in the darkest of times, um, you know, you don't get to, you know, 24 and counting franchises in, in a major league soccer, uh, despite still centralized ownership. Uh, but at least it's a, it's, you know, it's going on, you know, it's, uh, well into its third decade now and uh, or second decade um, uh, with with strength. Um, and that's clearly something other professional soccer leagues have uh, not enjoyed. Um, and this is the sort of inelegant segue into your uh, experiences in professional soccer, in particular WPS, women's professional soccer, which uh, our audience probably knows or, or if they don't uh, should know uh, was the second real attempt uh, in the wake of the WUSA that preceded it, the Women's United Soccer Association, uh, to do uh, a full-fledged professional women's soccer league here in the United States. And I guess you could make the argument that, um, you know, aside from the, the success of the national women's team uh, relative to that of the men's uh, and the success of that um and the uniqueness of that could have been, to your point earlier, uh, an opportunity to create the best league for women soccer players in the world, um, which would be unique and different and, and 
um, uh, and special, not unlike the, the NHL and hockey or the, you know, Major League Baseball for baseball, right? Those are the, uh, not even argued, uh, best leagues of their kind in their sports uh, in the world. Um, but assuming all of that, um, how did you even get involved with a fledgling soccer league, let alone that of, of, of a pure women's variety, um, especially after the first attempt uh, flamed out so magnificently with lots of money down the drain? Um, my first job in sports, well, my first job in sports was actually working in the 96 Atlanta Olympics as a college student. But my first sort of office job in sports was as an intern for a minor league um, soccer team. It was a minor league team to the New England Revolution called the Boston Bulldogs. And the guy who was the president of the team at the time was named Joe Cummings, really respected soccer executive. He'd worked in the New England Revolution front office, and he actually left that job while I was an intern to um, help start up the WUSA, Women's United Soccer Association, in 2000 which was really launching on the back of the 99 U.S. victory in the Women's World Cup. Uh, and that had, you know, attracted 90,000 people to the Rose Bowl. The television ratings were through the roof. They had sold out Soldier Field and Giant Stadium in some of the earlier round matches. And that got the attention of cable TV operators. So a group of cable TV operators had come together to fund this, this league. And Boston had a franchise called the Boston Breakers. The league played three years. It was very successful, you know, to what you were just saying in becoming the best league in the world. And it signed all the best players, both American and international. Um, but they just burned through money and they lost $100 million in three years and they folded um, after their third season in 2003. Um, so, like I said, there's always a greater fool. Um, there's always people who want to bring it back. And so a group of people came together and said, all right, let's learn from their lessons and try another league. And Boston had been one of the best operated franchises and most popular teams in the first go around. So Joe Cummings was recruited to come back and, and restart the Breakers franchise in this new league, WPS. Um, and so he actually came to a minor league baseball game in Brockton, Massachusetts, where I was the general manager of the team and the stadium. And he was just taking notes. He was on a sort of tour of ballparks and stadium around New England to take notes on fan experience and game day production. And I bumped into him in the, in, in the crowd, basically, and hadn't seen him in eight years and struck up, struck up a conversation. And I was about to get married and getting a little bit worn down by doing, you know, upwards of, you know, 80, 90 events a year. And so I asked him to have lunch with me and, uh, one thing led to another and ended up um, right after I got married on the pitcher's mound at our stadium, I gave my two weeks notice and went to work uh, for Joe starting up the breakers in this new league. And that was in the fall of 2007. We didn't take the field until the spring of 2009. So I got to be part of about an 18 month startup. It wasn't actually supposed to be that way. It was supposed to start in 2008, but one of the great challenges and sort of, bad karma of that league was that we got to start it right in the teeth of the recession. Well, and, and, and it's interesting to hear it because it sounds like it's also, uh, there's a more perceived stability uh, coming from your minor league experiences. Um, I think, no, <laughs> I think I knew exactly what I was getting into, but um, 
you know, more money for 10 games a year instead of, um, you know, less money for 70 games and five concerts and 10 bar mitzvahs and three, you know, circuses and all the other things that we had in the field at Brockton. It was just, I needed, I needed a change. Um, but you know, that was something I was conflicted about. You know, I, I, for a lot of the time that I was in that job with the breakers was, you know, feeling that we were doing good work and that we were the, you know, in a lot of ways, the sort of model franchise of WPS, um, certainly off the field. Um, but it was probably the first time I took a job as feeling really like a hired gun. Um, and sort of from a more mercenary standpoint about taking a job for money and less about sort of passion than the jobs I had taken in my twenties and before I got married. So I always, I I've always had a little bit of self doubt about whether, you know, was I in the right place? Um, because I was trying to do the best that I could, um, for a business model that I really felt from the beginning was probably doomed to fail. When did you sort of sense that for the first time? That the business model was doomed to fail. Uh, yeah. When I had the first day that I had lunch with Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you an example. Um, so the, uh, actually I have, I have two kids under five, so if you can hear a baby crying in the background. It's, uh, it's, it's life. Life occurs. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, Unless they're in trouble. I, I, yeah. I, I remember we talked about um, corporate sponsorship. And Joe said to me, you know, like, what, what do you think is reasonable for us to expect for corporate sponsorship relaunching this league? Um, and I, I told him, you know, at the team that I was at at the time, I think, you know, we were doing about $700,000 a year in corporate sponsorship, uh, this independent minor league baseball team. And um, he said, wow, that's more than I thought. He's like, you know, our goal is about, um, our goal is about a half a million dollars um, the first year. And I said, how does that compare with the, the you know, the, what the Breakers did the first time in WSA and what the other teams did um, in local corporate sponsorship? And he said, well, that would be an all-time record for the WSA. Nobody did a half a million dollars locally in the, in the WSA. And this was after, you know, he had sort of told me about their plans to spend less on advertising and cut back the expenses because WSA had spent so much. So I said, Okay. Um, you know, how many sponsors do you think it'll take to get to the half million mark? And he said, well, our pro forma is, you know, about 10 sponsors at $50,000 each, um, you know, to, to do a half million dollars. And he said, how many do you guys have in Brockton to do 700,000? I said, 114. <laughs> um, you know, cause we had, we had, you know, the local laundry guy and the real estate guys and the insurance agent on Main Street downtown, and they were all spending five or six thousand dollars. You know, there's a few people spending forty or fifty, certainly not ten. Um, and one of the challenges was that they were first, they were sort of making that price based on the idea of we have, we are the greatest women's soccer league in the world. We will have all of the best players, like WSA did with Mia Hamm and. Brandy Chastain and players like that, you know, we'll have this, the, the next generation's Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain. And that's why these sponsorships are worth $50,000. And I said, well, that may be, but you're only going to play 10 to 15 home games with 
you know, four or 5,000 people at each game. I have players that nobody's ever heard of, but we're going to play 50 home games with 5,000 people at each game. So if I'm, you know, the local, you know, regional manager of Bank of America, and neither of you are on TV, you know, why am I giving you $50,000 for 80,000 fans to see me this year when I could give the local minor league baseball team $8,000 for five times as many fans? And that's a conundrum that, like, women's sports haven't really resolved, is that they just don't have the eyeballs, but they want to justify big dollars based on the caliber of play. Um, so that was a that was a challenge. It just wasn't clear how they were going to spend less and make more than they had the first time around. Um, but they were going to spend enough money that they wanted to hire me. <laughs> so I said, okay. Well, yeah, and you jumped in, and and clearly there had to be something there that 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 compelled you to mm-hmm. to to take a a a, a solid crack at it. And, and, and frankly, it's probably a little bit more than just the business model, right? And the, and the financial returns of such, but, but the, the, the mindset and the passion behind it, which was this still not fledgling, but, but uh, premier uh, women's soccer talent in the United States and, and seeing it grow and, and, and potentially go to, to, to higher levels now. Yeah. The talent was exciting. I had a huge respect for Joe um, and what he was trying to do. I met the owners. I had a huge respect for them. And um, the other thing is I had just never been able to be part of a startup. Um, every job that I had been in in sports, I'd come in at um, – I'd been in baseball for the most part, and I'd come in in like the team's third or fourth year when they were sort of hitting a bit of a, a plateau, like the sort of honeymoon phase of – getting a new team in your community was wearing off. The season ticket numbers were starting to go down and I had been part of trying to sort of um, get past the plateau or reverse a decline in one case um, after the first couple of exciting years had worn off. But I was sort of inheriting, you know, a marketing plan and a structure and a history in the community. This was a chance to build everything from scratch. So that was probably the most exciting part of it. And when you became general manager, um, did it get more complicated, more challenging, or did you feel like you were ascending along with the team and the league into 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 greatness or at least goodness? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, it's hard to recall how I felt now. You know, that's probably eight years ago, but um, you know, I certainly. I liked the challenge. By that point, you know, I'd been there about a year. Joe had decided to move on to something else in soccer. And I had a huge loyalty and belief in the staff that we had and the opportunity to continue working with them in a leadership position was really exciting. Probably the staff that I had on the 2009-2010 Boston Breakers was the greatest front office group that I've ever been around. And some of those people have gone to some great jobs. Um, So that was certainly part of it. I really loved the fans and the players. You know, the, the talent really was remarkable. It was net league. Like WSA, WPS did a fantastic job on the sort of on-field product piece of getting the best players in the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I still felt like we were probably in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but um, 
but it was it, I also took a lot of pride in being part of that organization. How, how did the Boston marketplace uh, take to you? Because the Breakers franchise obviously had been perhaps one of the standouts, if not the standout of the previous league. And, and even to this day, in it's w, uh, NWSL continuation, if you will, um, you know, it's, it's still a very uh, vibrant marketplace, especially for not just for soccer in general, but for young girls and women uh, in the sport. Yeah, uh, it's Boston's a great city for women's soccer. Had amazing players there over the years. Um, the team today is now in a great little stadium on the Harvard campus. When I was there, we played in Harvard's football stadium, which was 30,000 seats. And, um, and not the most know, modern. It, it was a, uh, that was really interesting. Harvard Stadium is on paper, even to the eyeball, just about the worst place you could put a professional sports team of any stripe in the 21st century. I mean, it's just a complete throw. It is a Roman gladiator coliseum. It's it's concrete berms. There's no seats in the whole place. So you can't do reserve seating. You have to do it general admission. It's it's dark underneath. It, bathrooms are old. The food is not modern. Um, it's artificial turf covered in football lines. I mean, you name it. Um, but for women's soccer, the fact that we could say we played at Harvard worked for us because the audience was entirely from what we called the W towns. If you, any of your listeners are familiar with Boston, all the wealthiest suburbs, like half of them start with W, Wellesley and Wayland and Weston, um, you know, so the, all of the sort of surrounding suburbs of Boston, they're very, very wealthy. That's where the Breakers fans are. Um, and that was one of the big mistakes that the old Breakers had made in WSA. We were lucky when we started the new version in 2007. We, we had, through Joe, who had been on both front offices, the old season ticket holder list. And they had about, you know, 2,000 season ticket holders the first time around. And, you know, I just started looking at the list. And, I, I mean, I knew names on the list from the newspaper. I mean, it was like millionaires, just like, you know, heads of the local hospital chains and Boston Red Sox players. And um, you could look at the zip codes, and there wasn't a blue-collar zip code to be found. There also weren't really corporate season ticket holders. They are almost all held by families. So it really was completely driven by, you know, and this is the case around the league, then and today, you know, the season ticket base is completely driven by the families of, of youth soccer playing girls. Uh, and so for a lot of those families in these affluent suburbs, you know, Harvard's campus is the kind of place they want to be with their daughters on the weekends. It sort of had this aspirational thing for them. Um, one of the other stadiums we looked at in the startup phase was a much more sort of appropriately sized stadium, about a 5,000 seat stadium with um, where we were offered the concessions contract. So we could have actually controlled the food revenue, which we couldn't do at Harvard. But it was in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a very hard scrabble, blue collar community with lots of um, crime and political problems and we would have failed there because that was not a destination that we were going to get the women's soccer audience to 
So, so in essence, in essence, you had the right location, but the wrong facility in that location. Yeah, at the time, I think it's now been solved because now there's a sort of 5,000 seater soccer specific stadium on the Harvard campus that was built for their team. But at the time, that was a big challenge. Um, we managed to overcome it. We sold 1,500 season tickets the first year in the teeth of the recession, um, which was more than any other franchise in the league. Um, and it, but it was it was tough. <laughs> it's a tough sell. Well, and how about so? How about the quality of play? Uh, did did in your mind did the quality of play match the um, uh, the aspirations of what WPS was trying to to do in in, in success from the from the WUSA? I mean, aside from the challenges of trying to market a team and a sport, uh, how was the quality of play? I mean, you, you you're talking about some of the best players in the world, like a Marta, like a Hope Solo, mm-hmm. um, like a Heather Mitz. Um, was the, was the play good? Um, uh, it seemed to be I thought that, it was, that it didn't suffer per se by, by some of the financial issues. I thought it was great. Uh, I'm not the most sophisticated observer of the women's game. Um, and I know there was some criticism that the amount of goal scoring was a bit on the low side. Um, but the league did an excellent job of recruiting the top players. Um, but this is one of those sort of intricacies of the industry is that it was also one of the things that sort of set them on the road to failure. So um, the mission of the league, I'm going to botch the wording here a little bit, but the mission statement was something like um, to be the, the, the best women's soccer league in the world and the league by which all other women's sports organizations are judged, something along those lines. But effectively um, the mission Mission didn't speak to the fan experience at all. So for me, coming from minor league baseball where none of the games matter, the stats don't count effectively. Like to me, I came in and it was just all about the fan experience. And I sort of found myself feeling a bit like an alien in among the women's professional soccer folks where it was all about getting either all or at least a quorum of what were perceived to be the best players in the world because that was the measuring stick of legitimacy. And in a way, I think the league founders boxed themselves into a corner with that mission. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So the, the founding commissioner was a woman named Tani Antonucci, who had worked in Yahoo in their digital sports department and had been, played at Stanford and been a teammate of Julie Foudy at Stanford. Um, and then the COO was a woman named Mary Harvey, who had been a backup goalkeeper on the 96 U.S. Um, Olympic women's soccer team. So two former high-level soccer players and also very accomplished business people. I had a lot of, I really liked working with Tanya and Mary. But I think it was a challenge to have two former women's players in the position of being the people who were going to effectively negotiate with the union or what stood in for the union. Um, And what stood in for the union was the representative of the U.S. national team players, a guy named John Langle. And a lot of people viewed Langle as one of the guys who had sort of helped bring down the WSA, fairly or unfairly, um, with his demands around player pay um, and and sort of stubbornness to which he held to to those demands. Um, So effectively what happened was there was no player union for the WPS players for the first several seasons. So in coming up with things like the league salary cap, 
Those things were negotiated with the de facto union, which was the leadership of the U.S. national team. And those conversations were had with Langle. And my perception is that Langle wiped the floor with WPS leadership. And so the original sort of cost projections that were given to investors kept going up and up and up as they sort of caved to more and more demands. Um, and the other piece was that there was a feeling that there were certain players that the league could not live without. And one of those players was the Brazilian World Player of the Year named Marta. Sure. Um, so we got involved in the Marta sweepstakes in Boston because Marta's Marta agent, who was a really high-powered agent for some of the top men's Brazilian players, well, she, was, said, she was essentially marketed or touted as the Pele, the women's Pele, right? Yes. So her she her agent said right from the beginning, there's two places she'll play. She'll play in L.A. Um, where the team was owned by AEG, who owned the LA Galaxy and the Home Depot Center, and where the team was going to play. Um, or she'll play in Boston, where um, I think, you know, I can't imagine she relished the idea of playing at Harvard Stadium, so I think it was largely because we had such a large Brazilian community in Boston and a really well-respected head coach, who was Tony DeChico, who'd won a World Cup and an Olympic title. So we actually flew her in, um, and just getting her into town for this this sort of negotiation and tour, you know, was she needed she needed a suite at the Four Seasons. She needed X amount of first class tickets from Brazil. Um, she needed a town car. I mean, I think we ended up spending more on her weekend visit than a lot of our players made in salary the first year. Um, and. We didn't sign her because she wanted half a million dollars a year, and we just said there's no way. Um, and the L.A. team sort of grudgingly agreed to sign her sort of for the good of the league um, and then went out of business after one year <laughs> after losing $4 million, way more than anybody else. Um, so, you know, they, they sort of set themselves up to where these the, there was a feeling that they couldn't live without this group of players. The players knew it. And the players were able to just continue driving up the cost on the salary side. One of the really interesting sort of things that happened was there was a what's called an allocation process of how to assign the U.S. national team players to the teams. And the WSA had done the same thing. And the challenge was, you know, that even though these salaries were expensive for the owners, you know, say $40,000 a year was what most of the national team players made in WPS, they were, you know, peanuts for a well-educated person, let alone an Olympic or World Cup medalist. Um, so the notion of just having like a draft where, you know, Philadelphia could draft Hope Solo and expect her to move across the country to play for $40,000 was just like preposterous. So what they did was sort of like a matching, a matching game where um, each player would pick the top three cities they wanted to play in and rank them from one through three. And then each team would pick three players that they wanted and match them one through three. And they would sort of assign players that way. So it's like a, a looser and, version of a draft per se with some parameters. Yeah. And of course what happens is um, 16 players rank Bay area as their number one choice, the Bay area team, um, let alone all the ones who put Bay area number two and number three. Nobody puts Philadelphia 
Uh, that happened in WSA. And in the case of the new league in WPS, not one person put St. Louis. Um, and so you do end up having to put some people in places they don't want to go. But what was really interesting was, you know, some of the players didn't put three. So a good example was Christine Lilly, one of the greatest players of all time. Had played for the original Breakers, was from New England originally, had married a firefighter in the Boston area, and was 35 or 36 years old and only going to play a couple more years. So she just put Boston number one and left number two and number three blank. Um, then he had Hope Solo, who basically put out through her agent that she wasn't going to play for $40,000 for anybody, but if someone wanted to offer her um, $100,000 contract, then she'd put them number one. <laughs> so she basically sold her ranking and was the only player to do that. Um, and then, so so sort of they went through the whole process, and there was a player named Kate Markgraf, who was a longtime U.S. national team player sure. on the downside of her career, and she had only listed one team, Sam Similar to Christine Lilly, she only listed Chicago. And so on the conference call to hash this all out, um, you know, the, the commissioner said to Chicago, okay, you know, so you, you're going to get Kate Markgraf. And Chicago said, we don't want Kate Markgraf. And it was like this had never occurred to the leadership of the league, the commissioner and COO, that a team might not want a U.S. women's national team player. You know, they were held in such awe and they were such icons that the notion that a franchise might say we'd rather not have this player hadn't sort of occurred. And that, that to me, that was sort of a red flag of how close the senior leadership of the league was to the sort of labor side of the equation. And the president of Chicago was a guy named Peter Wilt, who's a great guy. He's somebody you should interview, actually. Sure. I've been Chicago um, Fire founder. I've been a season ticket holder since day one. And um, he's sort of the... Uh, the Pied Piper of soccer uh, startups in yeah. the United States. Absolutely. And he's a guy who's really got that sort of minor league fan experience take on things. You know, um, he really understands sort of what to do for fans, but you know, he was, he was on this, you know, he was doing this negotiate this, this sort of allocation process. And he's like, we don't want Mark Graff. You know, she doesn't really fit with our plan, but we'll take her if you give us a fourth. <laughs> So he very shrewdly got a fourth allocation that nobody else got in return for taking this player that he either didn't want or claimed to not want. Um, but that was a really illuminating sort of episode um, because the league was so unprepared for the idea that maybe somebody wouldn't want a national team player on their team. Now, how, how did you, uh, so how did the Breakers get uh, Heather Mitz then, who arguably was probably the. Um, I want to call her the pinup girl. I think that's uh, that would be a, a bit of a disservice. But obviously, mm -hmm. uh, as a high wattage uh, marketing draw, uh, was was clearly somebody that that uh, could could help you sell, so to speak, the team a bit, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I think the word that we used internally was sort of was glamorous. But in addition to being an excellent player, um, so we knew. We were in a bit of a tight spot because we knew we were going to get, we knew two of the three players we were going to get, which were Christine Lilly and Angela Hughes, who both lived in Boston, had both played for the original Breakers. Um, we felt like we wanted a really marketable player. You know, Mitz was very marketable, um, great player, um, had done some broadcasting when she had played in, with Philadelphia in the other league. She had dated some 
Philadelphia Phillies players, and at this point she was, I think, about to become engaged to a Philadelphia Eagles player. So she sort of was known to the celebrity pages, and we felt we could get some marketing there in addition to getting a really good player. Um, and so we really pushed for her. We Boston, I don't think, was her number one choice. Um, but we intentionally listed her as our number one choice, knowing we were going to get the other two players we were going to get um, to try and compel the league to give her to us. And they did. And that ended up really most of the earned media that we got, and this is sort of illuminating about the state of women's sports, but most of the earned media we got that first year was really around having Heather Metz in the team, much more so than, quite frankly, the more talented players that we had, like Kelly Smith, who was the English English player and world player of the year runner-up to Marta on a couple of occasions, or Christine Lilly, you know, um, Heather Mitz was the one who got us onto the local sports talk radio station, and she was the one who was on the cover of you know Improper Bostonian magazine and all these things. So it was important from an earned media standpoint. Um, and when she left, you know, it left a void on a, on the marketing side for sure. Well, that's the devil's bargain, right? It's it's you've got something that is marketable, or a person who is marketable can be quote unquote the face of the team. Um, it harkens back to uh, 1974, right? Uh, our listeners will soon know, hopefully, if we're uh, lucky to get him. But Chef Messing uh, famously uh, posed for a little bit more risque, I think, probably than than, than you did with, uh, or Heather did when, in marketing the Breakers uh, for Viva magazine, uh, which was a uh, a female-oriented publication where he posed essentially in the raw, and um, you know, and it drew a lot of attention. Not all of it uh, to the soccer purists' uh, delight, uh, but he famously said and he was absolutely correct. It probably drew more attention to that still fledgling New York Cosmos team he was on uh, than any than the years prior, or frankly, for the next year or so until Pele came aboard. So uh, it's it's a it's a tough tough thing to sort of balance um, uh, marketing and sizzle with the quality of the product, which arguably is the you know, is the, the solid reason why people should keep coming back, right? Yeah. I think mean, one of the things that's tough for women's sports teams in general is that they tend to get the same article every year, which is the opening day article. Like, they're back. Um, <laughs> so, like, you, know, you get the feature every year right before opening day, you know, it's the 15th year for the Minnesota Lynx or whatever, and then nothing, you know. And, you know, you get a couple short, you know, you might get the beat report on the, the score from last night's game, but you like you really don't get the features in most markets, other than sort of opening day, you know. And in the case of Heather Mitz, and and also the player that sort of came after her with us was another very glamorous player named Leslie Osborne, um, who got a lot of the same attention here. You know, it really wasn't anything along the lines of of you know what Chet Messing was doing in the seventies, but it was more that you know, for example, we could get articles on women's fitness or articles that were already going to happen on women's fitness, for example, uh, would now cast our players as the cover uh, model. Um, so it really just helped us get into like lifestyle um, branding and lifestyle, with, honestly, more like more stuff that women read, like, um, you know, the sort of Boston equivalent of page six 
um, in the newspaper, sort of the social, the society page and stuff like that, than it was really like sex appeal type of stuff specifically. Um, you know, but they get invited to like charity runway shows and um, you know, hip clubs downtown and, and restaurants and things like that. So it's always tough to attribute value to that. Um, I never got a sense that we were necessarily selling more tickets, but you sort of know that it's better to have that exposure than to not have it. All right. Um, I, I don't want to overstay our welcome. And I, I, uh, some of these stories are, are, are tremendous and, and I, I think will be, uh, will, will uh, certainly generate even more chatter, hopefully, once we're up and running. I know I'm giving you a lot for the cutting room floor. No, this is, this is, this is <laughs> awesome. But I, I don't want to uh, uh, end without having uh, talking about uh, – I guess two particular areas in the uh, in, in WPS, um, some of which I'm sure were um, well. I know one was a direct story that you've you've mentioned on your uh, on Fun While It Lasted .net by the way, um, and that's your story with Hope Solo um, uh, when she was playing for St. Louis. Uh, and the other uh, is the Magic Jack saga, which in some respects yeah. seems like it was almost the microcosm of what became the ultimate demise of, of, of the league. But um, any of those two are, I'd love to hear, I think our audience would love to hear um, some of your thoughts there if you're, if you're willing. Yeah. You know, Hope Solo is fascinating player. You know, one of the all time greats on the international scene in us soccer. And when the league started up, you know, I, you know, and I was really purely on the business side that first year. But I had the general manager's ear, and from a business perspective, when we were doing that allocation process of reference, I said, we, we've got to make a big run at Hope Solo. You know, to me, she was just, she was the potential breakout, sort of transcendent player in that U.S. national team group circa 2008. And, and I have to say, that 2008 national team was not, it, it was lacking in personalities. So it was a real concern, you know. They they won the um, they won the Olympic gold medal that year, and they came back to do a victory tour. And this was as the league was getting ready to start. They come back to do a victory tour, and one of the first games was at Giant Stadium, and they drew four thousand people to Giant Stadium after winning the gold medal. And we just in the league, we just said, "Oh shit!" Mm. You know, this these are the players that we these are the these are the marketing tent poles for the league and nobody wants to see their victory tour. You know, Mia Hamm had retired, Julie Foudy had retired, Brandy Chastain was no longer on the national team. So that generation of of players that had just captivated America was gone and the new group was not really resonating. But Hope Solo to me seemed like the sort of breakout character there sure. you know she has this sort of superhero name um she is brash sort of unpredictable incredibly talented extremely strong and athletic looking tough gritty player uh compelling personal backstory with her father um which i is readily available for anybody who's not familiar with it but uh worth worth reading and um and incredibly talented and very beautiful, just sort of the complete package, in my opinion. And I had said, we got to put her on the list. And, um, you know, the, <laughs> the, the soccer side people in the organization, players, coaches, basically 
had already had a lot of interactions with Hope Solo and basically said, like, you'll have my resignation if you guys get her. Um, they did not want her on that team, period. Um, some key influential people on that team. So we didn't make a run at her, and she subsequently kind of pulled this, you know, pretty shrewd negotiating move where she um, circumvented the salary cap and got a hundred thousand dollar salary when most of her teammates were getting forty grand. Um, so we wouldn't have wanted to pay that. Um, so we didn't get her. She was she was okay in WPS. I think she was battling injury a lot of the time that she was in the league. So she actually wasn't one of the greatest goalkeepers in WPS, although she was having tremendous international play at that time. But she came through the second year. She was on the, the team from Atlanta. And it was a strange game. It was at, We were at Harvard Stadium. And it was a game that never should have been played. Um, it was actually a makeup game on the schedule because one of the other franchises in the league in St. Louis, which had been a basket case in the beginning, had folded in the middle of the season abruptly. And it had caused us to, to cancel a game at home, a home date on like a couple of days notice that St. Louis was supposed to be in town for. Never a good sign when you're trying to run a professional sports league. It was, yeah, it was bad. It was the beginning of the end of that league, to be honest. And um, it was also the biggest advanced sale we had for the whole year was that game. So we were expecting a huge crowd and we lost the game. And uh, so we got this other game added to the schedule against Atlanta on a Wednesday night in the middle of August, which is just an absolute garbage date. We didn't make any attempt to sell it. It would have been a complete waste of time trying to drive group sales or anything else into that date. So we ended up playing in front of like 1,500 people in this 30,000-seat stadium. You could hear a pin drop. And um, it was just a complete morgue-like atmosphere. And we usually had, one of the things we did is we hired this Brazilian drumming corps to play at every game, like 20 Brazilian drummers, and they were deafening. And on TV, it sounded amazing. Mm -hmm. And in the stands, it sounded amazing too. And one of the effects that it had is it made a crowd of 5,000 feel like 10,000 because they played nonstop for the whole 90 minutes. But they couldn't make it that night because it wasn't on the schedule that we had given them at the beginning of the year. So they weren't there, and that made it even more silent. So Hope just had a crummy game. You know, she gave up a goal, I think, like two minutes into the game. Gave up another goal later on. I think we won two to nothing. Um, and I was down on the field at the end of the game talking to the Atlanta owner as the beat players were walking over. She kind of walked over and gave him a big hug. Walked off the field just like normal, like anybody else. And then I went back to the box office to sort of count the night's game receipts. And our an intern came in and said, wow, you know, Hope Solo's blowing up Twitter right now. And <laughs> it was this big self-righteous tweet decrying like um, the racism of Boston fans and that the Breakers organization condoned this type of behavior. And it was just, <laughs> it was just like sort of baffling. But one, the, the book on Hope by this point was that, you know, she needed adversity. She needed to have enemies to thrive and that if she didn't have them, she'd create them. And so, you know, I took the tweet in and I took it into the locker room where I actually gave it to Leslie Osborne, who was our team captain. I said, can you go in the locker room and see if the players heard anything? Because what Solo was alleging was that the fans had been directing um, racist remarks from the stands at two Atlanta players. One was Japanese and one was African-American. 
And so Leslie looked kind of shocked because we'd spent the whole second half pelting Hope Solo with shots, which meant our whole team was basically in the beat half, in the beat half, or the beat the beat side of the field the whole second half, and would have heard whatever Hope heard. But she said, "Oh, okay." And she went in there, and basically the response from the Breakers player was a lot of eye rolling and sort of Hope being Hope sort of comments. Um, so we sort of thought it would blow over in a day, and. Um, you know, when she cooled down and she'd sort of issue an apology or have the beat PR department issue a statement of regret of her choice of words. But she actually sort of doubled down on it the next day with all of these very specific allegations of being pelted with rolls of coins and very specific things that were said to this Japanese player and African-American player. And so we investigated it. And I mean, we interviewed everybody police details, the field personnel. We knew which area of the stands she was talking about, so stadium personnel that weren't employed by us that worked in that area, and nobody could back it up. But, you know, um, it was very frustrating, um, and the league basically didn't want to handle it and said, you guys figure it out. Uh, so I sort of forgot about it for a couple of years, and then she wrote a memoir <laughs> And, uh, shortly after I started the blog and it actually like made it into the memoir as like one of the sort of adversities she'd had to overcome or maybe a case where she had sort of stood up for all that was good and righteous. So at that point, I kind of posted the whole story on the website. And to this day, it's the most read entry on the website. And whenever she does something outrageous, like beat the hell out of her cousin or throw a teammate under the bus, you know, a bunch of people link to it. Well, I, I guess some people would look at that as no publicity is is bad publicity, and then yeah, I, I, you know, I, 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 while I'm sure that it, it's challenging uh, to manage that situation, I, you know, in some respects, you yeah, there's probably some upside in terms of, I guess, publicity or people paying attention to her or the story, and obviously, where did that story occur? But in a women's professional soccer game, oh no, by the way, she'll be in town next week. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, you really can't, you can't really use sort of like racism allegations as a oh, certainly, yeah. hook for a play, of playful publicity campaign, although I have to admit it occurred to us. <laughs> um, we just, you know, we took it seriously, but when we could find that, the, you know, that when the, the specifics of what she was saying were just so outlandish and easily disprovable, and nobody could corroborate it, including none of her teammates really coming forward. You know, we, we started, did start to get a little silly internally and she was due to come back, um, one more time when she was on magic Jack the next year. So that'll be a good segue. But, um, we were actually going to hire a courtroom stenographer to sit in the middle of our supporters group section and do a stenography of all of the chants for the entire game. Um, you know, just as a dig at her, and then she ended up not um, being on the roster for that game. So, you, so well, you brought it up. So let's, uh, let us idea. use that as a as a final segue here. Um, and I, 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 am I am I correct? So, in in believing or at least assuming that the Magic Jack franchise uh, was almost a a harbinger or maybe a, a smaller yet substantial. Uh, example of of how and why WPS ultimately 
met its fate after the third year? No, you are incorrect. Ah. Um, Magic Jack was a disaster, and it was fascinating, and it was a really almost sort of incredible foreshadowing of the presidential campaign that we just had uh, <laughs> this year. But it was not, you know, a turning point or a harbinger of doom for the league. The league was already on its course. And I think Dan Dan Borislow, who is the owner of Magic Jack and is now dead, um, became a very convenient scapegoat for the business failures of the other owners in the league who were who were already spiraling. Um, so he became, you know, his sort of reign of terror in that league in the final season became the scapegoat for why it didn't go on. But what happened would have happened anyway. And, and for our listeners, what, what the fact that Magic Jack actually existed, right? I mean, there, what was that story? It seemed like there was uh, almost uh, anarchy from, from the very beginning, from the very name mm-hmm. of the franchise, as well as the, I don't know, seemingly lack of marketing support or, or whatever. Just it, How would an owner with that kind of, shall we say, latitude, uh, even be allowed uh, to to run a franchise under those circumstances, maybe to the complete opposite uh, effect of what other teams and owners were doing. Well, um, so the guy the guy involved was named Dan Borislow. Um, he actually passed away two years ago playing pickup soccer. At age fifty two, he just dropped dead of a heart attack at the end of a match. But in, in late 2010, after the league's second year, the league was on the verge of going out of business. And um, one of the teams that was really a linchpin of the league was the Washington Freedom Franchise. They had they were the only team with the same ownership going all the way back to the f- formation of the WSA. And the family who owned them, John and Maureen Hendricks, had really been the founders of WSA. Absolutely. They were cable, the founder of Discovery Channel. And he had roped in the other cable operators that he knew to launch the WSA. And when the other guys had all packed it in after three years and folded the WSA, he kept the freedom alive, playing as a low-level amateur team in the wilderness for two or three years before the second league started up and then re-entering them in that league. And he was they were one of the few franchises that went out and hired experienced sports salespeople and MLS veterans to come in and operate the business side. They had Abby Wambach on the team. Um, it was a very well-operated team, but he grew disillusioned with the other owners in the league. And after 10 years, you know, in the fall of 2010, he said, I'm, I'm out. And his, the president of the team, who was an MLS veteran, knew Boris Lowe or heard of Boris Lowe's interest. And from what I understand, basically just handed him the keys. And I don't think there was a purchase price or anything, but I think, you know, Boris agreed to keep the team going, um, but he wanted to move it to West Palm Beach, Florida, where he was from. And the league was just relieved that someone was going to keep it on and keep the league viable and pump some money in. And so they really didn't vet him at all. And, um, you know, pretty quickly he started being a little bit provocative. Um, he wanted to rename the team Magic Jack SC, Magic Jack Soccer Club, after his little internet device that 
you know, some of your listeners may remember seeing like endless infomercials for back in like 2008, 2009. Free telephone calls using the internet. Absolutely. Right. So he had already made $300 million in the late 90s selling his first company to AOL. And now he'd started the second company that was worth, you know, it had an IPO and was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, made a lot of money, spent a lot of money very flamboyantly. You know, he had a 66-foot yacht, and I think he was a member of Mar-a-Lago, you know, Trump's place down in West Palm Beach. And he, so he immediately started assembling basically an, an, an all-star squad of U.S. national team players at a time when all the other owners in the league were cutting money to almost a ridiculous degree, um, cutting salaries to a ridiculous degree, he took advantage of that and sort of stepped into the void and was offering big bucks to come down there. So he already had, he had inherited Abby Wambach on the roster, but he quickly added Shannon Box, Christy Rampone, Hope Solo, and all these other players who were free agents, either because the teams they played on had folded or because they were just out of contract or, or he was able to trade for them. The interesting thing is we had a player at the time named Kelly Smith, who was the second highest payer in the league after Marta. She made $150,000 a year. And the big money guy behind the breakers, our main owner, said to me, um, you either need to renegotiate Kelly Smith's contract or I'm going to fold the team. Um, she was making $150,000 a year at the time. And she had a basically an ironclad three-year contract. We were committed to it. And I called her agent and basically said, we need to cut this contract in half. And he just said, you know, go pound sand, basically. And um, when I was at an impasse with the agent, um, and without telling our head coach, Tommy DeChico, I emailed Dan Borslow and I said, um, Kelly Smith is available. <laughs> um, we had a, he had a player that he'd inherited from the Washington roster named Nikki Marshall, who we coveted. And I said, you know, trade Kelly Smith to you for Nikki Marshall and, I don't know, a couple draft picks or something. And Dan's reaction was, who's Kelly Smith? Which is really funny because, I mean, it's nor that's a normal reaction for most American sports fans to have. You know, greatest English player of all time, but, you know, not a household name in America. But for a guy who's a massive, you know, who's just bought a franchise in the best league in the world and is assembling a squad of, you know, U.S. national team all-stars, it was sort of interesting. It'd be like if a really rich British guy bought, you know bought Arsenal or Manchester City and started buying up every English national team player. And then Real Madrid called and said, are you interested in Cristiano Ronaldo? And he said, you're going to have to tell me who that is. Um, so he didn't, he didn't know. He did not care about international players one bit. He was basically, pardon my language, but Starfucker, who wanted to have a sort of personal toy of having the U.S. national team as his club as his club team. And he did a very good job of assembling um, the core of that team down in West Palm Beach and put him up in these, these high-end condos and gave them cars to drive and took them to these lavish dinners. Um, but they quickly discovered that they had to deal with his peculiarities as part of the deal. So among them, he didn't believe in athletic trainers. 
So he refused to provide the team with athletic training services. He would only provide them with a chiropractor. So, um, you know, he really treated them shamefully, I would say. And there's a lot of, you know, he always sort of denied these stories that they came out in the media, but, you know, there's a sort of definitive ESPNW article on his year in WPS from 2012 and just the very wide allegations of sort of sexual harassment of players and the way that he interacted with them and the way that he screamed at them on the sidelines. Um, certainly we saw it in the way he interacted with league officials and the way he demeaned a lot of officials over email, particularly female league officials. And well, you, you call out on your, really, on your side a story, I guess, of one of the players just literally just yelling back during the, in the middle of the game is to his uh, uh, encouragement of, of the players on the field. And I take it the players didn't really, didn't really uh, enjoy well, being watched actually, that by yeah. the owner. It was act, that was actually Kelly Smith, the player I, I secretly attempted to trade to him. Um, so we, he didn't want to play anybody in an exhibition game because he didn't want anybody to see his strategies. Um, but the Breakers were training down in Florida for preseason, and he did have a lot of respect for our head coach. And maybe it was because our head coach had been the U.S. national team coach and had won a World Cup. But he did have a rapport with our head coach, which was sort of rare among his relations with other teams. So he agreed to play us in a preseason game. And this was really the first time that any outsiders had seen what Magic Jack culture was like. And it was incredibly odd. Uh, so I had our sort of team traveling secretary call him personally because he had no front office staff. He had Brianna Scurry, the former U.S. national team goalkeeper, as his general manager. It wasn't really clear what she did. There was no other staff. They didn't have a team website. Um, they didn't advertise or promote the schedule of their games in the West Palm Beach community at all. Um, he had no interest in doing that. Um, the team played really for the amusement of he and his family, effectively. Um, and so we went down there, and our, our had somebody on our staff contact him and say, um, okay, you know, here's here's when our bus is arriving for the game tomorrow, yada, 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 and um, and here's, you know, what we'd like to eat after the game. I think it was like, you know, pizza or something. And he was like, I'm not buying you food. <laughs> and we said, no, this is like standard operating procedure you know you're going to find this when we get to the regular season dan like so we'll help educate you on how like the standard operating guidelines but you need to provide a spread of food for the players after each game and he's like that is absurd that's ridiculous you know i'm not going to get you guys food <laughs> and so i just said okay you know i said to i was up in boston i said to my you know the manager down in florida I was like you know here's here's my credit card just if there's no food for you just take the players out and get them some, some food and you know, keep it reasonable. <laughs> so we go down there. Um, we play the game. Boris Lowe's on the sidelines um, yelling at his players as if they're like eight-year-old youth soccer players. So he's got, you know, U.S. national team players playing in the World Cup, dribbling up the field, and he's yelling like, look behind you. They're coming up behind you. Um, <laughs> you know, as, as one of our players would approach. And just, I mean, just barking at these girls like their eight-year-olds have never played before and finally Kelly Smith just turned to him and Kelly Smith was a tough player who didn't take shit from anyone and she just she knew exactly who it was and she just yelled over him and said shut the fuck up um and our athletic trainer was put in an awkward position because she got down there and all the Magic Jack players walked across the field and said could you please 
please tape our ankles um, because Dan won't get us <laughs> an athletic trainer. So she ended up, you know, furiously like taping ankles to try and get both teams ready before the game started. And then the game ended, and we had no idea if there's going to be any food. And Dan takes both teams out unannounced to a uh, extravagant dinner at some club where all of the wait staff were wearing tuxedos and tails and spent thousands and thousands of dollars feeding both teams after refusing to buy his pizza the day before. Um, so that was just sort of, and it just, it got weirder. And like I said, I mean, he just defied every social norm and stricture of being part of the league. And, uh, and I don't just sort of mean in the way he spoke to people, but, you know, we had a precious few national sponsorship contracts with Puma and a few others, and he simply refused to honor them. You know, he wouldn't put up field boards with Puma on them, um, which every other team in the league did as part of this longstanding, you know, multi-million dollar sponsorship deal. He was mad at Puma because of something or other, and he just refused to do it and didn't want to spend money on it. So... Um, he really was a, it, it was, it, I have to say, we, we did a couple of trades with him during the year and felt sort of conflicted about it because, you know, the, we, we sort of rescued a few players from that team, but it also meant we sent a few players to that team. And, you know, you sort of heard what was going on down there and it wasn't a place that you wanted to send anybody. Um, only one player has ever come out and sort of given a full account of what that year was like. It was a player, younger player named Ella Mazar, um, and she posted a report which you can still find online if you Google Ella Mazar, M A S A R, Magic Jack, and it is um, it is beyond belief, really. And um, and none of the, the, her other teammates really came out to support her publicly. Um, but privately, these were all things that we had been hearing for a year. And um, there was also a big difference in the way he treated the U.S. national team players and the players who weren't of that level. And I think one of the real scandals of that, which has been reported on a little bit by ESPN, ESPNW and Deadspin and others, but is largely sort of a forgotten anecdote in women's soccer history at this point, is the degree to which some of these very senior U.S. national team players did not stand up to him while witnessing the way he treated a lot of the players in that team. And uh, I, I think that will always be a bit of a blight on the careers of several very prominent players. Um, their sort of ongoing loyalty to him, which they were never able to give a justification beyond a large paycheck. Uh, and, and and some of the things that they witnessed that they didn't um, didn't really seem to do much to address. So it was a very difficult circumstance. Um, the league ended up revoking his franchise after one year. Um, at that point, he had a pending grievance filed against him by the Players Union of the League, which was actually the only action that that union ever took in its brief existence. Um, and so the league was, you know, he, the team was taken away from him, and the league folded a few months later and sort of blamed him and the lawsuit with him that resulted as the result for its demise. But um, the reason, you know, your question as to, like, why was he able to run amok was that the league had sort of allowed itself to degrade to the point where a person like that could come in and, and exploit the lack of expertise and experience and weakness 
that was the result of getting rid of most of the kind of experienced executives um, and administrators and gutting the league office in the months before he came in. Well, on that happy note, um, I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I so I'd love to go deeper on on some of these things, and and frankly, uh, I'd love to. Um, over time, uh, perhaps revisit some of these stories and maybe even go a little bit deeper because, um, you know, those three years, and frankly, even the years prior, uh, the WUSA, um, you know, are, are, are not only interesting stories and, and, um, uh, and, and whatnot, but, you know, you're talking about um, the, uh, and, and now, frankly, a, a seemingly thriving uh, uh, and well-managed um, uh, women's league today um, that's all part of the history, right? It's part of the history of soccer in this country, and it's also, in particular, uh, the uh, separate and, and refined history of, of women in soccer in this country. And, you know, you were, frankly, a witness to a whole bunch of it. And um, the fact that you were willing to be uh, uh, open about some of those things, as well as just being, frankly, taking a chance on a flyer on little old me uh, for this <laughs> this podcast for where, where wherever it goes, hopefully it'll be... Uh, It'll be something that will return in kind. Um, I, so I do want to I want to thank you, but I also want to tell our listeners again: um, this is just scratching the surface of the uh, fun and frivolity that you'll be exposed to uh, on Andy's uh, amazing site. Uh, it, it is uh, I I think of it as almost the Wikipedia for all things forgotten in sports. Um, it's called FunWhileItLasted.net, um, and something we didn't even chance to talk about, but you should also check out is there's a, a component of it called Minor League Paper, um, which is uh, Andy's uh, uh, eBay site where you will find a treasure trove of WPS and other Forgotten Sports League and team memorabilia. Uh, it is fascinating. You will lose a lot of time uh, by being on it. You will want to purchase many of those items, uh, as I have done in the past. Um, and it's just uh, it, it's a fascinating treasure trove of, uh, of information and items. And uh, again, Andy, I can't thank you enough for uh, being the first sort of guinea pig for, for this effort. Um, you're a treasure trove of information, uh, and I'd love to not only uh, thank you, but hopefully keep in touch for, I would hope, a, a return appearance at some point soon. Yeah, that would be great. It's a pleasure, and I'm really excited to see how your project develops. All right, that is our episode for this week. Thank you to Andy Crossley for uh, coming on the show, being one of our first subjects, if you will, one of our first guests. Uh, kind and uh, gentle soul is he and, uh, and a trooper to boot. Uh, his website, must visit. It's called funwhileitlasted.net. Um, I guarantee you'll have a good time uh, on that site. You will uh, find a treasure trove of uh, stories and uh, and remembrances about teams and leagues that uh, either you remember or frankly never knew about. It's just it's fascinating and endlessly so. Uh, there's a, an eBay site in there as well. You can see uh, and purchase uh, various memorabilia from said teams and leagues. Uh, it's it's just fascinating. Uh, as for us, please uh, go to iTunes next time you're there. Please feel free to rate and review us highly. Uh, we love five stars in particular. Um, and our website, of course, is goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can leave us an email there. You can sign up for our email list to be notified about various things. And of course, on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, we're all on Instagram as well uh, with Good Seats Still Available. And you'll also find us on Facebook. 
Uh, Tim Hanlon here saying thank you. Uh, look forward to much more uh, in the weeks and months to come and take care, everybody.